0: Thank you, thank you all very much for coming out in such great numbers for, for, this, uh, for this discussion. My name is Nick Tyler and uh, I, for, for want of my various sins, one of the things I do is I, I run a center for lifelong health and well-being at UCL called Crucible Center, um, which is about multidisciplinary research and education relating to, funnily enough, lifelong health and well-being. And um, it always sort of has been striking me for a long time. About this sort of question about how we see um, disability and other things in society, and one of the sort of examples of that, which is very topical at the moment, is the question of the difference between the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. And it's interesting to do this uh, here in uh, in University College London because there is a sort of um, a piece of ethos that's actually quite important. The the founders of UCL um, wanted to change university um, education and study and the the way of thinking um, in order that education should become available to everybody. Let all come who merit deserves the the best reward. And that is quite similar in a way to the sort of faster, higher, stronger motto of um, of the International Olympic Committee. And it it sort of strikes me that, that somehow or other, there is a little bit of a disconnect between that sort of idea and some of the um, ways in which we actually behave. And so one thinks back to the original um, 1948 um, approach by um, Sir Ludwig Guttmann, when he basically set up a, some games for his patients at Stoke Mandeville Hospital during the course of the Olympic Games. And um, 12 years later, that turned into him taking 400 wheelchair athletes to the Rome Olympics to run what he called the Parallel Olympics, and that's the beginning of the term of Paralympics. By 1992, there were some 3,500 athletes from 82 countries at the Barcelona Olympics. And this year in London, we're expecting 4,200 athletes from 165 countries. So the the issue of um, Paralympic sport has become actually something which I believe is now very much in the mainstream. So uh, we've invited um, speakers here, four speakers, who have very different um, slants on this question. The first is, Uh, Dr. David Howe, who is a um, Senior Lecturer in Anthropology of Sport at Loughborough University. He is a Paralympian. We have Professor Nora Gross from UCL. She is the Director of the Leonard Cheshire Disability and Inclusive Development Centre. We have Mark Dyer, who is the um, Accessible Transport Manager um, for the London 2012 Olympic Delivery Authority Mm. local. Um, And um, we have um, Dan Brook, who's the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Channel 4. So the way that um, we're sort of planning to run this is that I've asked each of the speakers to prepare a sort of five-ish minute um, talk, a sort of pitch, if you like, on their response to the question of why should, um, why do we hold separate Paralympic and Olympic events? Um, And then we may have some sort of clarification, Clarification session amongst the panel, and then uh, we will open the floor to people in the audience to raise their comments and ask questions of the panel. So, first off, I'd like to ask David Howe to um, kick us off. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, when I woke up this morning, like many of you, um, um, my, my clock radio alarm went off, and I heard immediately. London 2012 is over. Now, that, that the whole idea of that, based on why we're here to de- discuss um, the relationship between the International uh, Olympic Committee and the International Paralympic Committee is hugely problematic. As the first speaker today, I want to endeavor to, um, rather than just simply put my point across, I want to ask some pertinent questions of the, the rest of the panel, but also of the audience as well to, to sort of ignite the debate. And there, there are three or four key issues that need to be brought to the fore, I think. And one of, one of these issues is the idea of legacy. And since 2004, the IO, the IOC and the whole bidding process for the Olympics and Paralympic Games has resonated with this idea of having some sort of legacy left after a Games. But legacy is hugely problematic. It is a concept, in my belief, that is made for and by politicians. It's very, very hard to pin down. And I think of the Mother Superior in The Sound of Music when she's talking about Maria and how do you hold the moonbeam in your hands. The idea of social legacy, which is the important thing to me. It doesn't matter whether Tottenham or, um, another football team gets the use of the stadium after the games. What is the social legacy for people with impairments in the United Kingdom for hosting the Paralympic games is really, really a problem, is really, really a problem. And the other thing that's been drawn to my attention and something that I've I've written about recently. So I wonder if this debate is really a reflection of the exploits of one athlete. Oscar Pistorius, the Paralympic athlete that everyone around the world knows. The Blade Runner, bilateral below the knee amputee, who successfully um, managed to gain selection into the Olympics. If it is Oscar Pistorius the reason we're having this debate, there are issues that need to be raised. The idea of the super celebrating some impaired bodies over the others. And those impaired bodies are often the least marginal in the Paralympic family. And that becomes hugely problematic as media attention gets drawn to these individuals at the expense of more severely impaired and more marginalized bodies. Channel 4 has it appears at least from the website, um, put a good mixture of experienced journalists and importantly, very importantly, people with experience of impairment on their um, production team for the games here in London. But what does the immense media focus of attention on these games really mean? Commercialization has in the past shaped the bodies that now compete in the Paralympic Games. When I first went to the Paralympics in 1980, there were a lot more opportunities available for the most severely impaired athletes that were part of the Paralympic family to engage in a plethora of sporting opportunities. Now the most severely impaired individuals have limited opportunity to show their abilities. These are really, really big issues. If we are going to combine the Olympics and the Paralympics, we need to be properly inclusive. And that means, and this is something that probably won't happen, that means throwing out the rubric that is the Olympic Games and throwing out the rubric that is the Paralympic Games and coming up with a different paradigm in which this movement can go forward together. If we simply accommodate Paralympic athletes with the Olympic movement, you will find that Paralympic sport becomes more and more marginalized. I want to leave with a couple of questions. Why is it people with impairments engaged in the practice of sport are seen as inspirational? There was a um, a Facebook group that I'm a member of, a disability sport Facebook group, that last night there were loads and loads of mentions that I can't wait to see the inspirational athletes at the Paralympic Games. That to me as a former Paralympian can be considered offensive. Why is it that somebody that goes about their pursuit of higher, faster and stronger, whether it be in the Paralympic forum or the Olympic forum, is any different? What is inspirational about impairment? I just don't see it. Why do Paralympians, the articulate and the inarticulate, alike parade themselves as motivational speakers? Most of these individuals don't have the charisma to motivate anyone, and yet they're up in front of able-bodied people telling tales that are inspirational. And we need to question these things within society at large. In large part, there is nothing ever special about people with impairments. Rather, we are different. Paralympians are just the same. We need to work to establish an understanding of social justice with difference at its heart. If the Paralympics continues to follow in the shadow, and it was quite clear this morning that that's what's happening, of the Olympics, this dream, or perhaps it's only my dream, will be considerably harder to achieve. Thanks very much.
0: So, um, I'd like to move on to Mark.
2: Good evening everyone, um, don't worry it's not going to be death by PowerPoint and it's certainly not going to be an opening ceremony or closing ceremony either, um, I've heard mixed views on the closing day after the opening so it's been an interesting day for me. I just want to give you a bit of my background as well, um, I've been working for Olympic Delivery Authority now for the last five years, so we go back 1,758 days and the start of the games whether it's the Olympics or Paralympics was a long time uh, in, the, in the future. What I want to do today is, I suppose, give my perspective from a, a not just an individual, but from a work perspective, and how the impact we would face if we combined the Olympics with the Paralympics, the opportunities it shows, but also the challenges. And my first Olympic memories were back in 1980, Moscow, and my heroes were Daley Thompson and Seb Coe. Um, so you can imagine my excitement when I was at Olympic Delivery Authority and I stand in the lift with Seb Coe for the first time, and almost squealed like a schoolgirl and then we talked about the weather as you do.
1: <laughs>
2: what I would say is, even when we became paralyzed age 20, my awareness and knowledge of the Paralympics was non-existent. It was there, but I couldn't have told you a thing about it. I certainly couldn't have told you anyone who competed. Obviously, over the last 10 years, that's evolved, developed, and we've had people like Dane tanny and others who have become well-known figures. And I think we obviously have an example there of people are now going to be successful in their own rights as business people as ambassadors, as was said earlier, aren't just there because they're disabled, but they do have a charisma and they do have something to offer to the party. Like all the others here, I'm sure I've been talking about people around the office, what does integration look like? There's a couple of key questions I have. Is it about sharing venues? So for instance, are we going to have events where you might see 100 meters uh, for um, wheelchair athletes and then you might see 100 meters with Hussein Bolt? Is it about combining events? Is it about do we want to actually integrate events? Are we talking about athletes competing together? The Oscar story if you like. And how far does that go and how far could it go? Or does it mean that it's about having two separate events running over the course of days condensed together in one place but maybe using separate venues as may happen at the moment? So there's a number of questions I, I face myself asking there. I suppose my concern is that, and this is based on what we're seeing at the moment, by producing that as one event, what is the impact of that? When it draws out the days, potentially, or you have to find a lot more venues. Do you get visibility of minority sports? And that doesn't mean just Paralympic sports, but it means Olympic sports as well. Is there less opportunity for identity and independence? And I think one thing we do through the Paralympics now, there is an identity, there is an independence, now, whether that gets diluted if it gets swallowed into perhaps the Olympics brand is something that I think we have to be looked at very carefully. One of the important things that I've found working with both organisations, the, uh, the International Olympic Committee and the International Paralympic Committee, is firstly the individuals that sit on that committee are different personalities; they have different values as well. Now, the advantage is if you put those two values together, do you get a stronger brand? But finally, what's the impact of funding and sponsorship? And that's always a challenge in a battle for the uh, International Paralympic Committee, fighting against that, that larger model of the Olympic committee. But if they go together, do they lose a say? Do they become more minoritized than they are at the moment? I'd like to take you through just a few quick slides. Just to give you a scale of the problem that I was facing when I looked at it. These are all the issues that come up for me. So as you can imagine, um, my role has been fairly extensive over the last five years. The last three weeks have been particularly extensive, and as was said again earlier, that people started at the end of 2012. I think at seven o'clock this morning, I was in my first Paralympics debriefing. So the good sign is we're moving on from our side of things. What I would say is obviously governance—we've talked a little bit about—is different. If we go on to look at things in a bit more detail, the schedules we have there's some really key dates there. We need two weeks in between at the moment to even make those venues ready. The great thing is that I think we have a separate Paralympic Torch Relay and that's a real positive. There's a real identity to it. It will be different again. And my key message I think is that different doesn't have to be wrong. It doesn't have to be the same. There are, different, there are different opportunities to do things differently. And I think we also need to consider there's not just a Paralympics movement, but there's also other Olympic movements as well, such as Special Olympics, and they should have their own identity as well. Unless there's a way of embodying all those together. Sports-wise, we have a lot of sports and what I want to point out on that side of things that one, is that if I have got 20 Olympic sports, Paralympic sports, about 21 disciplines, 284 sessions, 503 events, an awful lot of medal ceremonies plus what I put in the Olympic mix, that causes me a huge problem across the piece as you can probably imagine. Those sports requirements are also different. There are different needs for venue requirements, different overlay. For some events, it works very easily. You try and integrate an aquatic center though at Paralympic time and at Olympic time does have its challenges, depending on how integrated you want to make that event look. There's a huge reduction in numbers of athletes. Uh, I think Nick said a figure earlier, I think that's jumping a bit, 4,200. We're talking about 7,000 we think at the moment. 20% wheelchair users. Huge volume again in how you manage that number of athletes if you have able-bodied athletes there as well, for want of a better word. Um, huge amount of equipment and to give the people the equipment that they need and the attention they need to get that equipment ready to give the best of their performance, it is very difficult to do that on a mixed environment. Likewise, the number of officials, huge volume of officials. We're looking at um, huge volumes of people coming to the country with different access requirements with different needs to make that happen as well. Those are my venues. Um, you'll be familiar with those as far as London is concerned and that is actually the sports venues themselves. All of those are shared with Olympic sports. So this really seems to fly forward, doesn't it? It's trying to whiz me through quicker than even I want to go. <laughs> so what you will see is, again, if you're going to try and put this in mean, a country or a city like London, there's a lot of venues there. Those are all Olympic, para, Olympic venues and Paralympic venues. Um, and the only thing is that obviously you obviously lose some of the out-of-London venues and the football stadium from the Olympic side of things. I don't know any city in the world that could support in a five-year program of turnaround to deliver all the venue requirements we had if we have them across that same time frame and not have the opportunity to convert and divert those venues. What I would say is that when those venues have been built in the first place, the new ones, there is a legacy value. And I really take the point earlier that legacy is the social value but from our side of things, we need to demonstrate the money that is spent has a legacy value as well in that built environment in trying to demonstrate changes in attitudes and values. And that's really, really difficult to do. But we are trying to do that and there's, there are positive signs out there. We have 70,000 volunteers that actually understand a lot more about accessibility than most than they ever did before. And understand about people's diverse needs. And actually understand that it's a good thing to talk to people on the tube in the morning, which doesn't tend to happen. <laughs> As I said, those are the venues, a bit more detailed. I don't want a fixture on those at all. But accommodation is another issue we face. Um, I don't know if people are aware, we reckon there's probably only a thousand wheelchair accessible hotel rooms in the whole of London. When you think of number of people that come over for the Olympics or come for the Paralympics, you'll see the challenge we have there based on just not athlete requirements, but friends, family and interest in events as well. To combine that all together at one time is very difficult. I think the other thing is that we're going to find that the media workforce, people with disabilities, again, is very high, and it's a great thing to see. But meeting those needs and those expectations is crucial for us to ensure we can create a positive image of what we're trying to do. The Oscar picture. Um, You'll have all seen that before, I'm sure, but probably won't again, is that right? But what I would like to say here is that ticketing process is different. I think there's an opportunity to do this differently. Why should it be that Paralympic tickets are cheaper than everyone else than the Olympic games when actually demand is just as high? But likewise, why the Olympic tickets are high, so they're not accessible for everyone to purchase. There's a balance between the two there. And I think there is an opportunity the way they promote it that should look at the opportunity to do that. Again, day pass is fairly limited during the Olympics time. During Paralympics, it's encouraged. You're encouraged to go and see sports. You're encouraged to spend time with other people learn about sports, sharing that occasion together. And I'd like to see that as a model. I think we can protect that into Olympics more going forward. For our spectators, I think I knew that's going to happen. I think what we see is a really interesting example obviously that there's a younger audience that comes to it. That's great. That should be an opportunity. My concern is does the Paralympic sports get swallowed up again into that Olympic brand? Do young people really get to see that? Do they get to learn about different sports? I think what's fascinating is sport that's really taken off has been handball. A lot of youngsters went to handball because they couldn't necessarily get tickets for the other, stu- other stuff and it becomes hugely popular. Paralympics is a great way for children to get to see sports they wouldn't necessarily see otherwise. Yeah, I think we all know we're in the place at the moment. If people got the opportunity, children would have said would they rather see Usain Bolt? That would be the answer most of them would probably give at this moment in time. Again, there's the opportunity to buy tickets as groups get people together, get value out of those tickets as well. And those are all positives that we should look to try and share going forward. Our transport issues are very challenging and that's obviously what my role sits us at the moment. Um, my biggest challenge is that people have taken two weeks off work and London has been quieter than most people have ever seen it for years I suspect. That tells me that in four weeks time it's going to be busier than it's ever been before as well. And that causes me a headache. Um, it causes me an issue that I have a lot of people come back with a work mentality. The happy days of the sunshine and the middle ringing are gone and people back in work mode and the awareness and consideration towards other people whether they have a disability or not goes down. It means it's that managing lift use that the actual demand for the lifts are going to be actually huge. And all the services we've got will come under more stress and more pressure. We also go to a stage where we get to a point where uh, we're looking at, the actual staff and the volunteers to try and sustain that for a period of four weeks solidly is incredibly difficult. Now I don't want to sound like um, it's not been fun but the hours have been hard for a lot of people, a lot harder for most people than it has been for me. Could you keep volunteers sustained for one block period of time or do people need a break in the middle? Do businesses need the opportunity to go out and rework their business, take that time away and then come back to the Paralympics refreshed on that. If you do one big block of time, I think that's going to be very hard to keep that energy and enthusiasm going from a workforce, from the volunteers, and also from spectators as a whole. I think people, we have an opportunity, we charge and regenerate towards the Paralympics. But my belief is that I think it should very much remain as a separate event with its own identity. And I think what really excites me, and Dan will sure say more than I will, but we have a very specific brand the BBC gave us for the Olympic Games, and the BBC does that kind of thing very well. I'm excited by the opportunity I see that Channel 4 with a slightly more, um, do I say, edgy approach. But in terms of more creative approach, certainly what we've seen in the build-up to the Paralympics can give that. And that should give everyone an energy and enthusiasm going forward, an opportunity to reevaluate the way they look at games, but also how they look at themselves and how they can get involved with that games as well. I hope today we get to a position that we can see that firstly, London is going to be a successful Paralympics. And we're seeing that with two and a half million tickets being sold already. That's the good news story. Let's see if we can take that for the next event going forward. Um, but in my belief, I think we should, Paris should remain separate on that side. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Thank you very much, Mark. Obviously, uh, I'm very glad to see you here. Because obviously, it's a very busy time for you. Nora, um, would you like to give us our next relation?
3: I, I, I'd i be delighted, and I'm going to keep my remarks brief because I want to make sure that, and I haven't prepared PowerPoint because I... I I thought you folks probably see enough PowerPoints on a day-to-day basis. and um, uh, uh, So I'm just going to speak briefly with the hope that we can come back to discussions in a, in a little bit and, and go with this in depth. This is posed as a debate. Should we or should we not combine Olympics and Paralympics? And I don't know if we're ready to really have a discussion at that level yet. I think that what a discussion... Uh, uh, discussion, debate like this can do is really kind of uh, highlight key issues because we're talking on a number of different levels. One is historical. So there's a history behind the Olympics and the Paralympics and as, um, as Nick started off, you know, it goes back to the 1940s and there's an evolution over time and it hasn't always been the most um, uh, um, straightforward of evolution. so, um, for example, uh, the, there was, um, it, at the Atlanta Games was, were actually in some ways a step back when you look at how good it was in terms of preparation, combination, and, and bringing people together. Um, there's also organizational issues. We just had a wonderful discussion of how, as, um, as an organization, the Olympics committees can bring together and, uh, a city, uh, uh athletes, the Olympics, the Paralympics, and really see where they mesh. And this is organizational. But there's a theoretical level as well. And that's really important to, to think about. What do we mean? Whose decision is it whether to combine the games? Is it uh, the, the Olympics committee? Is it the, the group, the uh, groups and the sponsors who organize these, group, uh, these, um, events? Is it individuals themselves? Is it individuals with disabilities deciding and having the right to decide whether they, participate in the Paralympics or the Olympics or both? So is it a continuum of options that should be made available to people with disabilities? If uh, sports are a form in which people, in order to, to participate, qualified by a set of rules, they are arbitrary rules, but if you can meet those rules, if you can run fast enough, if you can shoot an arrow straight enough and, and with precision enough to be in the Olympics as opposed to the Paralympics, what does that do to the Paralympics? Is it a two-tiered system where some people could opt out of the Paralympics if they can qualify for the Olympics? And if so, who makes the decision of who should participate where? Um, and do we need to make that decision or should we leave it to the individual athletes? Uh, and finally, over time, will this, as things change and develop, is this a discussion that we should be having, or is this something that the organizations that, that organize these games will decide on their own without the input of the disability rights movement, of people who are active in, um, in uh, issues of, of equality and fair play? How do we, how do we, um, manage this process in a way that it reflects the needs and the voice of people with disabilities themselves and of athletes themselves. And finally to me as um, someone who is not particularly a sports person, one thing that strikes me about the Olympics is that we're talking about elite athletes. And the question also is how do you draw people, if this is like, you think of it as a, a tree with the elite athletes on top, and all the capillaries, all the roots that would bring people in, bring children in, bring young people in, bring older people in, to enjoy sports and to appreciate both the games and also to participate themselves, need to be something that's accessible to people with disabilities so that they have that choice. And we often talk about the very top of the tree without really discussing what it means to have a whole system in place to get uh, uh, people involved in enjoying sports whether they are able-bodied or they are, they have a physical disability or an intellectual disability. How do we set up a system that has, if we were talking about legacy, how do we think about that legacy in a way that it's not just the elite athlete, but that elite athlete may reflect thousands or hundreds and thousands of others who can enjoy sports, who can enjoy watching sports, and who can get a lot out of individual participation. So maybe let me stop there. Uh, if I have no answers, that's because I don't know if there are any answers. Um, but uh, but I think that it's uh, very important to ask questions uh, along uh, on this realm.
0: Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, done.
4: Hello, everyone. Thank you very much to uh, Leonard Cheshire for asking me to um, come and speak uh, to what is undoubtedly a fascinating and, uh, I believe, quite complex question. Um, and I should establish up front that my professional hinterland is neither in sport uh, nor in the world of disability. Um, though, as we would uh, as I was discussing with the other panelists before, my brother was a talented athlete. It was a field of life in which he excelled to a high higher level than me, uh, as in many other levels of life. I speak as a middle child. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, and I, uh, but having said that, I, what I might do, uh, if you would indulge me, is to just take a slightly self-interested approach in the first part of my remarks uh, and just say some things about, about Channel 4 and uh, the nature of our involvement with the Paralympics. Um, and to do that, I need to start by a little bit explaining uh, what Channel 4 is. So we're a, we're a state-owned public service broadcaster and we have a very specific public service remit which is given to us by Parliament which has a range of different obligations within it and they include to innovate in the sphere of television, to reflect the cultural diversity of the UK, to champion alternative voices and points of view and to nurture new talent. And there are others but those are particularly relevant uh, for this subject. So, it's specifically in relation uh, to our public service remit that we decided to bid for the 2012 Paralympic Games. And we're paying for it as with all of our content by raising revenues in the market from commercial activities. So, unlike the two weeks we've just had when the Paralympics come on, I'm afraid there will be adverts. uh, and I say that because uh, just to establish uh, something which is not necessarily always understood, which is that we, Channel 4 doesn't does doesn't receive and never has received uh, a penny of direct public funding. However, while commercial, we're also uh, like the BBC, a not-for-profit organization. So all the revenues that we generate get plowed back into to content. Uh, and I should stress, I think, that we're not, broadcasting the Paralympics as a money-making exercise. We're doing it to fulfill our public service remit, both to widen the interest in Paralympic sport, but also to try and change people's attitude to disability. Now, as far as our coverage is concerned, there are three parts to it. Firstly, there's the amount of it. We're broadcasting about 150 hours of live coverage and about 400 hours of coverage in total, including all the highlights. And this is about four times as much uh, as has, has ever been done in the UK and we're very proud of that. Um, secondly, our presenters, uh, half of our 16 presenters, as David was saying, uh, and reporters will be people uh, with some form of impairment such as Addie Adepitan, the former wheelchair basketball Paralympian, and others such as Arthur Williams, a former Royal Marine, and Martin Dugan, a carpenter from Glasgow. The other half are all experienced sports broadcasters such as Claire Balding and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, each part of the day will be anchored by at least two presenters, one of whom will have an impairment. Most of the presenters and, in, and reporters with impairments have uh, come via a national talent search that we held last year and we spent about half a million pounds training them to be live sports broadcasters. And I think. The biggest legacy for us will be if one or more of these presenters with an impairment can develop to have, have an ongoing career as a broadcaster within sport, or I think even better within the wider world of television. Um, we're also developing what I think is a, a much-needed uh, graphic system to go on screen, which will explain the classification system uh, called Lexi, which we've never had before. Uh, and the third is our, our marketing and promotion of the Paralympics. We're we're launching it with the biggest marketing campaign in Channel 4's history, Uh, and many of you may have seen the the TV advert which started before the Olympics. Uh, The response from the viewing public uh, to that advert has been, I've never seen anything like it. It has generated huge interest in the event, uh, and it has also, uh, Locog tell us, had a significant impact on ticket sales. Our research suggests that it's also significantly reframed for people who have seen it what the Paralympics are, which is elite sport that is more than the equal of the Olympics, as well as starting to impact how people view people with an impairment generally. And we've also just uh, recent, uh, last week, started a cheeky burst of advertising on posters and it's just about a start on television around the theme of thanks for the warm-up, <laughs> um, which, which I'm glad to say people so far seem to have liked. Uh, How will all this do and what will it achieve? Well, that undoubtedly lies ahead of us. But I do sense that the Paralympics is entering uh, a new chapter in its story and not because of our efforts but because of the quality of the sport and the elite athletes that are taking part in it. Um, This then brings me to the question uh, of today's event, why we hold separate Paralympic and Olympic events. And to, to answer that, try and answer that question directly, I mean I think this is superficial answer is that it, it, it's because of history, it's the way that it's developed. But underpinning this is obviously the question of whether in the future the events either should or indeed could be combined. Now based on the, based on the principle of e- equality, it does seem right for competitors with impairments to compete at the same uh, overall sports event with athletes without impairments. However, there are a number of issues, many of which have already been highlighted, uh, that would flow uh, from such a decision. Uh, I mean, I think a big question is uh, what a combined event might look like. Look like, and I'm, I'm afraid, I'm not simply not expert enough to determine whether all of the individual sports events could be combined. Uh, but I can see that that would be very complex. And if you couldn't combine them all, then obviously there is a, there is, uh, there is some form of inequality there. Uh, it, it could certainly, I think, be viable in theory to have individual sports events side by side but that means uh, increasing, uh, as has been said, by at least two-thirds the size of the athlete's village and the logistics of moving all the athletes uh, around the venues. And uh, that obviously is an incredibly complicated task. I mean, I suppose just thinking about, you know, human's ability to overcome logistics, one assumes that that could be done but it would almost certainly reduce I suspect the number of countries that could then afford to put the event on uh, which produces a separate type of inequality again. You could of course pair back the number of sports or the number of competitions within each sport but that I would argue would have the same effect. It may also mean that the scheduling of TV coverage of different events may produce reduced levels of audience for the less popular sports though I should say as the broadcasting expert that the logistical issues for broadcasting of having some form of combined event, I don't think those would be insurmountable. Um, but I think what it, the biggest thing that that combining them would do would, would mean that the unique identity of the Paralympics would be impacted. Uh, and at the moment, my sense is that that distinct identity is one of the Paralympics' great strengths. In the round though, I think that if the events could be combined without disadvantaging some nations, and without disadvantaging some sports or some athletes, then it's a principle that should be aspired to. However, I suspect that this is not going to happen anytime soon because as the president of the IPC has said, the Paralympics and Olympics operate on a nine-year lead time and the IOC and the IPC are committed until after 2020 to operate them as parallel events. But my sense is that this is the combining is the direction of travel uh, uh, because I can see that that is happening within some individual sports whether at the training and funding level as I believe is the case with GB cycling uh, or at the competitive event level as has happened with the Commonwealth Games. And uh, for us these seem to be very positive developments and it will be encouraging to see that approach taken across a wider and wider range of sports. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dan. Um, before we open, open up to the floor, is, are there any comments that any of the panel wish to ask each other to see if we can clarify any issues that have been raised?
4: I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the logistical issues because they, they are so significant. And I, and I see your long list. Do you, think, do you think those could be solved with money and ingenuity?
2: I, I believe they can be. I think that certainly the nine-year lead time that's been set out at the moment, you'd need that and more to do it. You're not going to turn that kind of event round in a five-year infrastructure program I mean, in the city, even with as, as much opportunity we've got here. I think the biggest issue you've got is how many countries around the world could genuinely compete for that. And we already know with Rio, this, the mix of the, how that games will be will be different to what we're seeing here in London. There isn't that same infrastructure in place. There'll be a good legacy of permanent infrastructure will go in. But to do it on that kind of scale would be very difficult. Um I fear you would find a lot of countries wouldn't be able to put on that kind of event where it's all put together as one. I think the other thing we need to remember is that there's a hugely positive commitment to Paralympics in this country. And we see that just with a number of volunteers that are coming forward and wanting to do the Paralympics, not just the Olympic Games. I think we have a way to go before you find that kind of commitment in other countries. I might be wrong, but I think that would be the concern if you combine it together as one at this moment in time, is the rest of the world up there with us on the commitment? And yes, we need to drive that gender forward, but I think there's a period of time that will take to do that.
3: Maybe to follow up on what you just said, but let me ask um, uh, the, because he's um, written a, whole, a book on uh, specifically on the history of the Paralympics. Culture, cultural history. Culture and history. Um, uh, to me, the um, the development of the Paralympics is certainly a process. Do you see it as, uh, how do you see it over time? Are we moving towards that inevitably anyhow? Is this kind of a, are we having really a debate? Or are we just kind of somewhere in the middle of a historical trend? Or do you see this as something that is not inevitably moving to a continually higher plane?
1: Well, I think they, um, it's an interesting question. And I think one of the things that you see in the development of the the paralympic games is that the the scope from um the early 80s the scope for more uh, a more diverse impaired population being engaged in a wider variety of sports was was far greater than it is today and i think the push to commercialize the games and um follow in the footsteps of the Olympic movement is having a detrimental effect on um, people with impairments. And and I don't know whether that's, that's something that's going to continue or not, but the the, you know, the poster boy of the of the Paralympic Games is a figure, if not Oscar Pistorius, is somebody very similar to him that the general public can relate to and they can perceive the ability in what Oscar has achieved. In much the same way, they can perceive the ability of somebody like Tanny Gray Thompson, who can um, push, a wheel or could push a wheelchair around the track as fast as a woman could run. But those people with impairments that don't fit into that, they can achieve the same standard as individuals with at, an able body, become marginalized As a result of these people being seen as Paralympic role models. And I think that if we get rid of this commercial marketplace and go back to the days when it was amateur and so on, the educational message is lost. But the opportunity to participate is gained. So it's a, it's a double edged sword. I don't, I don't really know what the answer is and and only time will tell. Mm
0: You were mentioning when we were talking earlier about the difference between the sort of um, the pyramid that you have with with, uh, um, Olympic um, sports where you have a a pyramid with a wide base of people from whom an elite group at the very top of the pyramid emerges, but in the case of Paralympic sports, it's more like uh, an obelisk. It's a much, much narrower base um, to, to choose from. And I'm wondering whether um, and clearly, there is a number issue there, a simple, um, very obvious number issue, but I wonder how much the participation in sport um, amongst disabled children is in comparison with non-disabled children, mm. and whether whether it's that engagement in, in sport during the early years, during school and education and so on, that actually engenders both what we at the top end, would call Olympic and Paralympic, but actually, much more of this is going on in the schools, in the in the amateur clubs, um, and so on. And is that where we should really be paying our attention?
1: Well, I think the I mean, the development programs are out there. The the international sports organizations that run um, uh, disability-specific sports, um, uh, the International Tennis Federation, the the, the gut- CHAP is here today, and um, they run side by side, they they run their organization and 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 so on. In my research, the problem that I see is there's a huge difference between individuals who are congenitally impaired, impaired from birth, and those with acquired impairments. And the socialization that goes on with a lot of congenitally impaired individuals is Parents wrap them in cotton wool and don't want them necessarily to get involved in things that are going to end up with them scraped knees, broken legs, and so on. And their existence might be different to an able-bodied child for, for lack of a better word. And I think the, the development programs that are, that are exist for people who acqu- acquire impairments have increased tremendously. The comedian Jimmy Carr, um, the British comedian Jimmy Carr got into trouble a couple of years ago. I thought it was wonderfully hilarious. He talked about the fact that the war war in Afghanistan, or whichever war it was, is going to produce the best Paralympic team possible because we're getting all these disabled soldiers. The irony is that the, the rigors of being a soldier are not, it's, it's not as rigorous an activity as being a high-performance Paralympic athlete in many cases. So you've got a program in the UK called Battled Back. In Canada, they have a similar um, tacky program called Soldier On um, that that is about getting ex-service people into sporting opportunities. But the number of ex service men and women that will actually be on the British team in um, a couple of weeks' time is very, very minimal because it's getting harder and harder to reach the standard of a uh, Paralympic athlete, which is wonderful. But again, um, the, the development programs at grassroots levels, um, you, the Youth Sport Trust and all these different organizations have things for getting young people into um, disability sports, Paralympic days and so on, but I don't know what the uptake on those things is. Can, I
2: was just trying to personal experience it because I became paralyzed when I was 20. And actually, it was incredibly difficult to find a sport to get involved with. There mm-hmm. were limited opportunities, and a part of that was down to the fact that even if you found somewhere to go, such as an archery club, they didn't have an accessible toilet. They didn't have opportunities to even get in a clubhouse type thing, so you were marginalized on that. That kind of element's better, I think. But because of this elite mentality, actually, mm-hmm. to go along and just do it for fun, and it, it's very difficult to get the time and the space to do that. And I think that's a real challenge out there that I want to do it to as good a standard as possible when I'm doing archery. Having said that, there is not the time and opportunity because of the programs that are put there in place to make you strive to want to be a Paralympian, for want of a better word, or to be the best you can be. And that's where the
3: funding seems to be going on that elite program. Yeah. And uh, let me just maybe follow up. Um, uh, there are some, uh, uh, much of my work is in the developing world and I know there are some very good programs out there to get disabled children, disabled adults into sports. But they're few and far between given the fact that we're really talking about, according to the World Health Organization, 15% of the world's population live with a disability. That's over a billion people. And for many, most disabled children, um, except for those fortunate few who are able to get into some uh, uh, specialized program, the issue is that either they're included as part of just, uh, you know, in the neighborhood, programs or uh the local soccer club or they're they're allowed to to practice for or they're not so there's already many many millions of children and adults who don't have that access and again i think that it's really a feeder system so it's not just the elite athletes but the whole system that we have to to think about um uh yeah my understanding is in the uk um 18% of all adults with disabilities do some sport, not necessarily elite sport. They might just get out there to the local club or they take a run around the block or something. Uh, That's compared to, that's 18% compared to I think 33% or so, 34% of non-disabled adults. So that's already how people with disabilities are only having access to sport and exercise at half the rate of non-disabled people. And that has more to do, I think, with, as you said, the local sports club. Uh, uh, Leonard Cheshire, for example, is just finishing up a survey on something called Exercise Your Rights, where they're looking, I think they're trying to get a 1,000 people um, with disabilities to respond to go and look at the local sports club and just see what's accessible, what's not, because if that's not accessible, then the, you know, that 12-year-old kid who's interested in learning to swim better may not get to that point where they can get into a club and start developing their talents. So to me, the issue is not just the elite sports, but the whole system. Um, and to understand it also in the greater context of a global disability rights movement that has been ongoing for the last 40 years, and a convention, a UN convention on the rights of persons with disabilities that um, uh, was uh, came into force in 2008, which uh, essentially guarantees equality Um, uh, as a rights issue, and one of the rights, and and clearly labeled in the UN Convention itself is the right to play and the right to to access to sport. And that Convention has now been ratified by 114 countries around the world. So uh, the fact that maybe we should also be talking about the Olympic movement within the context of the Convention.
0: I mean, this is interesting because it, I think this sort of discussion is starting to say it's actually about the everyday sport, if we can call it that, not not just the one that happens every four years. Um, and I'm wondering, um, Dan, I mean, would Channel 4, do you think, be interested in um, weekly sport programs of the sort mm-hmm. of sports that, that would appear eventually in the Paralympics in the way that we have sports, you know, regular weekly sports programs now?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think if there's, you know, if if it if it can be shown that there's an audience for it, I mean, we've been doing a, uh, I'm sure some of you may have seen it, a program called that Paralympic Show, uh, in a, across about half of the year since we won the bid, um, which, you know, I would say has been quite popular. Uh, I would say it's not been a sellout. Um, uh, I think, I mean, I, I think my. I think let's see what happens with the Paralympics because I think my sense is there is a there's a surge and there's going to be a real change in people's interest in disability sport, um, both in watching it and you know I would hope in participating as well.
0: Okay, um, would anybody from the audience like to ask any of the panelists something? Do we have a volunteer? We have one at the back of the. Bench.
5: Uh, Following on from Nora's comments about the broader base, I think there's there's possibly a a, a lesser but still major problem with everybody uh, in this country of very large numbers of people who have very little, if any, exercise physical activity, not just sports, and then things like Sports England that are only interested in sports. There does seem to be this focus on elite sports and the only reason for encouraging more people to take up sport is so that we get more gold medals rather than actually getting obesity down and getting everybody active, whether they're disabled or not. Um, Likewise, with what Channel 4 and other media show, would you uh, actually believe that about 50% of the population are female and take part in sport? Apart from athletics, it's very, very rare to see women athletes on television. So there are many groups that are disadvantaged in that sense and that don't get the coverage that actually they should get because, for example, with football, um, I have no interest in it, but I believe they're just as good but without the egos. LAUGHTER <laughs> Any comments
4: on that? Well, I, I mean, I I, I, uh, I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, I mean, I, I note that I note the opposition has come out uh, over the weekend saying that they believe that there should be a much more significant funding emphasis on uh, on on female sport, which I think is I think that is very welcome.
2: I think I think if I can add to that as well. We've seen such a surge in interest from children to want to do sport, Olympic sports, as opposed to just football, which tends to be the thing everyone wants to do as a kid now, so if you're a boy anyway. um, What worries me is that we will get that surge of interest from the coverage on Channel 4 and there won't be opportunities out there for disabled children, either integrated groups or separately, to go out and do that because that mechanism isn't in place. And if you don't catch people in those two, three, four weeks afterwards, the rest of the school holidays type scenario, then, there's a real risk you lose them forever and I think that's the danger, the whole thing system breaks down at grassroots, you never get them switched back into it again.
1: I think that's one of the, um, Nora mentioned the the UN Convention and I was strongly opposed to both the UK and Canada where I'm originally from um, signing that agreement because part and parcel of the problem that, that exists uh, for impaired for impaired individuals, we, we, we live in a, in a culture of checking boxes. Okay, we've signed that agreement. As soon as that agreement's signed, there, there is a onus is placed again on the individual to contest what, um, what the agreement says and you haven't lived up to your end of the bargain and so on. So it, it really becomes, so if you are, And the elephant in the corner here is class, I think. If you're well informed, if you're well read, you can go and you can lawyer up and you can say, yes, I deserve access because the legislation says that. But we know into the developing world that where, you know, it's the underclass where the greatest number of impaired individuals exist. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so signing up to large-scale agreements like this, while in principle may be a good idea, if you look at article 30 which is about sport and leisure there are all these get out of jail free clauses that exist there wherever possible where appropriate etc cetera, etc cetera. and it becomes hugely problematic and so the the middle class impaired might be able knocking on doors and saying hey i've got a right because the uk signed up to the convention but Others may not have the skills and ability to engage in that sort of discourse.
0: And and there is the the possibility that it becomes negative. I remember a few years ago, I was um, asked to give some advice in Brazil on um, making public transport more accessible. And um, it was very clear that in Brazilian legislation, all the laws were there. Um, and the reason that all the laws to do this were there was because every time they went to an organization like the World Bank um, to ask them for money, um, there was a condition in there that said you must have legislation that that says your public transport will be accessible. So they write the legislation. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) it seems very easy to check in boxes. Yes, yes. Um, But the problem is they have no mechanism, and and a, a mechanism in the sense of the education training as well as the physical mechanisms um, to implement any of that legislation. So they sort of tick the box, but they haven't actually got the capability at that time, they didn't have the capability to be able to put ticking the box into a form of action. We see the same sort of thing happening in other areas, um, responses to climate change would be a good example, good contemporary example. Um, and I wonder whether in, in a way the sort of grandiose uh, conventions like UN conventions European agreements all these sort of things actually are counterproductive because they divert attention from the doing of uh, making sport accessible rather than simply ticking the box to say well we've we've got the right words in place
3: yeah, I, I, I would um, I, I know we want to hear from the audience, but um, it varies from country to country. In some countries, in both the developing and developing world, are doing better than other countries. So there's, it's, you know, you don't want to just blanketly say the developing world isn't doing it. Some countries are doing a pretty good job, or at least they have, um, uh, good legislation on the books. Uganda, for example, has some of the best legislation around. The issue is it doesn't have to be either or. You know, I, I would argue that you do need some sort of, an, International conventions, or, or, but, but that doesn't mean that it's just, you know, that doesn't let you let, uh, let you off the hook at your local community, um, sports center. And we don't ask, we don't say to other groups, you can choose one or the other. You, we don't say to women, you don't need laws, we'll just include you. And I think for folks with disability, it should be the same thing.
0: Okay. More from the floor. Gosh, many. Um, There's a young lady in the front there with the yellow one in the middle.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Claire from Leonard Cheshire. Um, I, I don't underestimate at all the logistics problems, but I do think we have a great example in the Commonwealth Games about how you can make a good start there. And, and I don't apologize for saying that I think the Paralympics is going to be inspirational. I really do think this is going to be a moment and we're going to feel a real surge of, of support around the Paralympics. But I did wonder to pick up the question that the panel raised earlier about whether we couldn't have a bit of a leadership role here, not next week, not next month, but over the next nine-year planning horizon in the same way that we have done in London and perhaps this is a bit of an intangible point, slightly in opposition to the gritty realities of logistics, but you know, for those of us who sat on their sofas and did feel inspired by the Olympics and who did put hundreds and hundreds of attempts to get tickets in the ballot, maybe there's something around what we felt as Londoners when we saw ourselves reflected in the Olympics, because I felt so proud of the way that we cheered people, whatever gender they were, whatever clothes they were, whatever country they came from, and for me, there was just a big empty piece in that jigsaw because I just didn't see disabled people who live in London reflected in what I was seeing on television. And I just think, and I'd be interested in the panel's views on this, whether there's not an opportunity for us to show some leadership around that.
2: Should I take that one yes. first? Yeah. Um, I completely agree in terms of we're all sitting obviously and we're all obviously inspired as well, I thought, and, and great sense of pride for it. all of us being involved and you know, all the volunteers that outside in terms of taking a leadership role, we very much do that in terms of a handover to Rio. And I think picking up our next point as well in terms of transport system. They may have a legislative process, but they don't necessarily have to implement it. And that part of our role is sharing the skills and knowledge we've got over here. And on a, on a very practical level on that side of things. The way that will go forward is as a games. We will share our learning with the games. Everything we do is combined and looks at an inclusive approach on that side of it but uh, we have this reality is due to two separate events that are there. The change for going to the one event and, or some greater level of integration, um, I'm not sure who the people are to take that forward and make that happen. The IOC and IPC obviously have their own very, very separate governance structures. Um, and to be honest, it needs to be the right people in those organizations with that openness to make that happen and do it separately. What I do think will be key is that we'll start to see at the London noise, things will be sold out. You will have 60,000, 70,000 people in the stadium. There is a commercial win now to having inclusive sports. It's not like that's only 20,000 people going to show up to that. There are sports there that people want to see whatever. So does that open up that window of opportunity, whether it's you know, a program of nine, 10 years to say, okay, there is still a value. People will still turn up and see this, so we can mix it up on that side of things. We can put logistics in place, and we can provide the leadership to pull those parties together.
1: I, uh, I'm interested in the, the, the feel good factor and, you know, everyone um, inspiring the next generation. And to me, to my mind, you know, I'm, I'm physically active. I love sport. Um, I'm no longer a sportsman, but to me, my daily constitutional jog is, is what I do and it's part of, part of who I am. But for the majority of people who are sitting there watching the Olympics, inspiring the next generation, you know, when a young kid goes down to the athletics club and, you know, 16, 17 years old and wants to be the next Mo Farah, okay? And then realizes he has to run in the morning and then come home from school and run in the evening and then run the next morning and it gets cold and wet and damp in the winter and it's dark when you run in the morning and it's dark when you run in the evening. It's sort of reminiscent of New Year's resolutions. And people who sign up to the gym en masse and say, hey, I'm going to get fit this year. The reality of, you know, being <coughs> an Olympic sports person or a Paralympic sports person is it's really hard graft. And I don't know, the physical activity message I don't think really got through. The BBC had this business where if you're interested in kayaking or canoeing, click on the, the pink strip and fill in your details and so on. But I don't know, I didn't do that, so I don't know what the link was and whether there is this engagement with physical activity, which I think is the much more important message. Not everyone who takes up running is going to be Mo Farah.
2: Can I, can I just respond to that in terms of we've done some amazing work with the five boroughs that obviously cover the Olympic Park. Um, and the take up of sport and kids being committed for a period of two, three years is huge compared to the other people doing sport before. Now there's a, the problem there is, it's taken an incredible amount of results, incredible amount of uh, money to do that and, and on all kinds of levels. If you try and roll that program out across the rest of the UK, that's huge to do. And can you retain that momentum? Now the gains will have gone as of the end of September. So I think that, that is a real challenge. It is tough to do. And we will still see this that small percentage going through, I think, as you won't say not
3: Maybe I should follow uh, – the, the the remark, though, I think was a little different. Let me – and I, I think it was a very important point. The, it, London as a city, as a community, has gotten a tremendous amount of, of pride about how these extraordinary games have been carried out. Can we do the same thing – can essentially that buzz be continued over and can that be a focus that we can push? The, Political leadership is out there, the media becomes very involved, people become on, on a day-to-day basis, you know, if you're chatting with someone, not that you chat with someone on the, on the tube, but it does happen from time to time, that sort of buzz, and, you know, and I think defining London as a city and as a community, I think the Olympics has done a great deal to help people kind of reconceptualize what they are and how they are as citizens of a, of a, of a, a major city. And the question was, can the Paralympics essentially be part of that? Can you combine it? And I think that yes, it can. I think if it's well handled and well directed. We'd be missing a trick not to do it because this is one of the things that would make, that makes London a unique city. And it's something that could be indeed an, a, a very important legacy from the Paralympics is essentially to take the goodwill that's already been engendered by the, by the Olympics and tried to extend it. And I think that part of it was, it was the media, it was the volunteers, it was the, from top to bottom, the um, community coming together around a sporting event. And can we, and this is where, if we think of the Paralympics as an extension of the Olympics, and the same sport, you know, the same, a group of people working together in the same venues, I think that if we could do that and link the two more firmly at this point, I think it'd be very good for London and I think it'd be a very important legacy.
0: I wondered, for example, whether um, it was very interesting watching the closing ceremony uh, yesterday, um, that this was very much, and this is very much in the tradition of of these events, was the handover to the next place. but it did strike me that actually the next Olympic event actually is in two weeks' time. And maybe what we should be doing, what that event should have been doing, is handing over to the Paralympics. Mm. And it's at the end of the Paralympics that you look forward to the two sets of games in the following, uh, in the following mm-hmm. whenever it is, four years' time. That's and, and it did sort of strike me that, that you know, the in- integration doesn't necessarily mean doing things at the same time. Um, it, it's somehow seeing the two as, as as together maybe and one does things separately and differently but actually it is the same event yeah. separated by two weeks of logistical adjustment, separated by people being able to breathe again and relax after or whatever it is. But um, so maybe the question right now it's it might be too hard to do for the sort of reasons we've been hearing about but maybe there are ways that integration we can take at a higher level that could
3: work. then mm-hmm. does that, does that? You mean w- move the closing ceremonies to the end of the Paralympics?
4: Well, I think your handover idea, handover as much to the Paralympics as to the next Olympic city is a terrific one. And I, and I think, I also think if there's a way of reducing the handover period, I think that that would be good. Um, I mean, I understand why it is the length it is at the moment, but that it's that is just down to logistics. I mean, I think there is another there's another question. Uh, I raise it because I don't uh, I don't have a fixed point of view about it. But some people say, "Well, should the would the Paralympics perhaps be running before the Olympics? Is that something that could happen?" I mean, I, I the thing which I'm really encouraged about is on the basis that you you know you have to start somewhere. I do think that the integration that's happening within individual sports uh is really interesting and I think if that can be developed mm-hmm. then that could teach a lot for the you know the for the, for the events that are even bigger ultimately the Olympics and the Paralympics and the the way that as I understand it the way that uh GB cycling do it uh this guy this extraordinary man Dave Brailsford he's in charge of an overall pot of money uh for Olympians and Paralympians Uh, and they all train together, uh, and they all use the same facilities. And I think that that's, I think that's terrific. And I think if we could see that develop with other sports, that would be a very, very good development. Okay, more from
0: the floor. I can't see, there's one in the front here.
7: My name is Joseph, and I'll give you a little bit of background information about myself. I'm involved with sport. In one area, I'm an advisor to all sports organizations throughout London in order to make their sports more inclusive and accessible. I'm also involved in LOCOG and the uh, ODA as well. and I'm also very involved in the Deaf Olympic Games. And I see sport at many different levels, different levels of accessibility for disabled people. The UK is one of the most advanced nations in terms of equality. But I feel that we haven't really made that much progress as a country during the work that we've done on the Olympic and Paralympic Games. One of the questions I've been asking is, how many disabled people actually are working in LOCOG and ODA? If the current Games is about working on both the Olympic and Paralympic Games, with the same staff, carrying out the same tasks on both events in parallel. If we had, say, 50% disabled people and 50% non-disabled people working on these events, would that mean that the Olympics and Paralympics could advance much more quickly and rapidly into the future? Uh, The last point I'd like to make is that we've seen things from an external perspective, not really from an internal perspective. And what I mean by that is that with a few disabled people working within LOCOG, we haven't really been able to take the lead in ensuring that both sets of games are accessible. We're allowing external factors to influence us rather than leading from within. The big question I have is, the Paralympics are there. When when people, uh, t- t- they sort of remind us that when we're watching the Olympic Games, those people who we're seeing are living up to this kind of perfect ideal that we might have but the Paralympics are there to remind us that not everybody is the same and what we're trying to do is is get people to accept the reality that's out there i apologize that i've made a lot of points and maybe asked too many questions
2: thank you very much thank you i suspect that one's coming my way isn't it <laughs> Um, in terms of staff, first of all, I mean, Joseph, we've met before, one or two things, I believe. Um, I'm not sure the exact numbers of disabled people we have working across. But certainly from an ODA perspective, there's a huge drive um, across our recruitment process from building a site and getting people involved in skilled trades and that with disabilities from actually sitting in an office side of things. So, you know, I think it's important to remember it's not just about those of us sat in the office at the end, putting the shell on the table type thing. There's a, there's a huge piece that went down there. What I would tell you is to recruit disabled people into our, our work, trade workforce is the hardest thing we had to do. Our recruitment levels on women were better than expected, uh, other minority groups and that, but disabled people is very difficult. And there's a, there's a battle that we face constantly, is how do we get people into that process? So aside of the event element of it, that was a real challenge we face. And I think we'd look at that and say, those numbers haven't worked from what we know, although we also have to accept the fact that not everyone tells us of their disability. And we've encouraged them to try and do that so we can support them as best as possible. I think, Jez, what you're talking about more key though is in terms of if we're going to put on this Paralympic event, if we're going to put on an Olympic event, have we got enough people in there putting all the different issues on the table around all types of inclusion? And certainly there are, and I suspect you know some of them within LOCOG, there are key individuals that, that do that role in very senior positions with different disabilities. I suspect you would also feel, and i would be inclined to agree, that doesn't apply across every single area of the business. And we did see where we set up some consultation groups that we got some people coming with disabilities where we took on to more formalized roles as part of Games and Batters than that. But there wasn't that longevity to that and I would accept that as something that I would personally like to see more of going forward.
1: I think that there's also a problem, um, not just within the, the running of the games, but also within the, the broader field, um, of adapted physical activity, which is very big in North America and parts of Europe. It's not, it's, it's not so influential in, in the UK because the practice is, is, um, world leading in this country, but the International, um, Federation of Adapted physical activity, the number of scholars you see that are actually working in this environment with impairments is very, very small, and it's it's a huge problem. There are, there are increasing number of scholars within disability studies, the more politically active and side of things, but within adapted physical activity, it is seen as a very maternal type organization. And so when we're talking about developing opportunities for people with a variety of different impairments, if there are not people actively engaged in academic discourses around these issues that have impairments, that have personal experiences, where again, it's not just the boardrooms that are the problem, it's um, ac- academic fields and other environments as well.
0: Um, I I would go along with that, I mean um, I, my my day job is I run the civil engineering department at at UCL and and civil engineering um, is actually a large part of what actually put the Olympic games together physically in terms of the venues and and the infrastructure and so on and it is very difficult uh, for us and we try very hard to, but obviously not hard enough um, to attract uh, people into civil engineering at, uh, to learn to be a civil engineer um, who have different sorts of impairments. and I think if we if we could only do that, um, that would actually help a lot of that construction and design process. That would actually make infrastructure and venues much better. The difficulty is that um, I think uh, the perception of an industry like civil engineering is one of mostly and. Um, forgive me for saying this, but mostly men in Wellington boots out on some muddy building site in the pouring rain and that isn't particularly attractive to a lot of people including women and um, some men and um, we are changing that image because it's wrong but it's taking a long time to get that through um, the process and, and um, disabled people are people we would really welcome inside the profession because it lends that additional perspective that is so desperately needed. So, so I think it, 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 yes. it, it's, it, it is a tough ask because that will starts with what they were doing at school and what, what young people's perceptions of a particular industry might be. Um, I'm very conscious of the time. Do we have one last question? It's us have um, at the back there with the two fingers in there. Yes. Yes. Right.
8: Thank you. Uh, were you pointing at me or was yes, this? No, you are perfect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> on this note, um, I, I wanted to talk about technology. And I'd like to say first that as an engineer, I, I do agree with your comment on, on the lack of um, um, female represented role models and disabled people in engineering. And I work, I engineer enabling technologies, and I haven't worked with a single disabled person who benefits from the technologies I work on. So, and I'm not talking here about um, things like the round wheels of the uh, Team GB cyclist. I talk about really, truly enabling technology. I'd like to see if you think we'll see a similar level of attention to these technologies that enable disable people to really compete at their highest, at their best level, or if that would be victimizing in a way, taking the attention away from the person, the athlete, and focusing it too much on the technology. Is technology enabling or is it victimizing,
1: for lack of a better word?
0: So. Thank you very much.
1: David, do you want to... Uh, well, yeah. I think one of the interesting things about... The, the technology that Oscar Pistorius uses, the, the racing wheelchairs, the tennis wheelchairs, wheelchair rugby chairs, and so on, are, are visible signs of technology. But as you will know, the technology that exists in the Olympics far supersedes the, the technology that existed 20 years ago. Whether it be, um, the, the bikes that are using, even down to the, the footwear that's being used and the, the surface of the track. So I, I don't know exactly what you're getting at, but the one thing that, that has to be said is that the technology um, that Oscar uses, for example, if he were 20 years older, he would not be competing um, as an ambulant runner. Most likely he would be competing as a wheelchair athlete. And so that changes the nature of what he does because the the technology wasn't good enough to do this sort of strenuous training and so on from a standing position um, if he were, say, my age. So I think the the technology is changing the face of the Paralympic Games, but it's also changing the face of the Olympic Games and all other sporting endeavors as well. It's just a little bit more obvious in the Paralympics because of the necessity uh, of movement that requires technology, which may not be so obvious in the Olympic context.
3: I think that's an excellent point. And the issue to my mind is, why isn't that part of, a, you know, a very public discourse? So it's been, the emphasis has been on, you know, the unfair advantage or the, you know, the technology for, for folks with disabilities. But in fact, all technology around sports has made a, a, a significant progress over the past several decades. And so the issue is really to, to reframe some of these questions and take it away from the disability, not disability, and to put it in a wider context. And that's an, what you, your response is an excellent example of that. I hadn't thought of that you know, till, till you mentioned it. Mm. And I hope now that you've brought it up that Channel 4 will, of course, bring this up as a key. <laughs> as a matter of fact, it might be, you know, like that 15 minutes. Maybe you could interview him. But, uh, <laughs> <There you go. laughs> but but I think that that's the issue is to have a, a, a discussion where you reframe the questions.
2: Mm. I think I agree. I mean, I think I think where it gets really fascinating is when you get a situation where Oscar can run faster than Hussein Bolt, over 100 meters, and that's kind of where we get to the point where people say, hang on, has technology gone too far? On on that side, to to get the the equalness, has gone the other way, if you like, and we get quite an interesting situation on that. Um, Technology can be positive in so many ways in terms of being assistive for disabled people, and it's, again, 20 years ago, I didn't have opportunities that you have out there now, and that's kind of stuff. Um, I think, in reality, the technology should still say within within a field though. The idea of mixing those technologies together in a sporting element, I, I personally feel more comfortable with it separate at the moment, I think.
0: Very, very interesting. And the, the um, I, I sort of think about Formula 1. Um, and the way that the technology that's used in Formula 1 eventually appears in, in a domestic car. and Um, Sometimes we actually have to push the technology to the end to find out what actually can be useful for everybody. And and in a sense, I look at the the sporting wheelchair designs. We've gone a huge distance in designing wheelchairs to do fantastic things, to go incredibly fast to corner and so on. Um, But I don't see the day-to-day going to the supermarket sort of. Um, wheelchair, for example, actually taking the same stretch forward. That the, the person, the 85-year-old person who has to push an 84-year-old person in their wheelchair to go and buy their new daily milk is still as tough and difficult um, to do as it was 20 years ago. And I think we haven't really made that, that translation um, as well as we might have done. Uh, that's a whole different debate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I think I think what we should do is is um, draw the draw the evening to a close. Let's disappear. Um we should draw the evening to a close. I'd like to thank all our, our panelists um, for their insightful remarks and, and responses to questions. We'd like to give them a good round of applause. <clears throat>